Hey, it's Beth here, over 65 and talking. Okay, so um, today was a great um, Sunday with the New York Times. Uh, the first thing, though, I read about was this couple, Janae Bonick and Patrick McDonald. They were getting married. They got married. And they couldn't even see each other for months because of the pandemic. So what they did on their first Zoom, well, it wasn't even Zooming. They just wanted to um, be on a regular phone. They did the 36 questions that lead to love. Now, I looked these up, and these two do look in love. It's great. The first one is, if a crystal ball could tell you the truth about yourself, your life, your future, would you want to know? Okay, very benign, right? It's broken into three parts, so you do it over three different days. Then, what do you value most in a friendship? I'm like, oh, I'd be talkative. Oh, it'd be so much fun. What do you treasure? What's your treasured memory? Tell me a terrible memory. Okay, I could, I could do that. What does friendship mean to you? Everything's going great. Number 12, how do you feel about the relationship you have with your mother? Oh my God, you're going to end a first date on that note? That doesn't work for everybody. With my mother, she called me a voracious fetus because she, was, she had morning sickness the whole 12 months. She said when I was born and I was all robust and healthy, she said it was a deal breaker. She said it was the worst nine months of her life. Anything that came up. She had diverticulitis and had to wear colostomy for six months. I said, is that worse? She said, absolutely not. She said, it, it, it just kind of screwed up our relationship and there was nothing I could do. How am I gonna tell that to somebody on a first date? I, can't, I could hardly tell that to my husband after 45 years of marriage. It's, it's not the way to do it. And then the next set of questions are fine. Why, why, you're just gonna hurt so many people with that that don't deserve to be hurt. It's not always your fault. I, I couldn't help what I was doing as a fetus. How can I explain that to someone? So be careful of those questions or just delete first day number 12. Trust me. I mean, unless you're in the top, I don't know, 20% of people, it's a little bit complicated. That's what you tell people after they love you very much and they can't turn back. It's just, or you're a lucky one, but 80% of us are going to lose if we follow that 36 questions to falling in love. God, I almost, my eyeballs almost fell out. Okay, so be aware of that one. Here's another one. Okay, David Schwimmer was very important to this girl. Her aunt committed suicide and she had been the showrunner on Friends for years. And David Schwimmer knew this girl's aunt who died when she was 38. The thing is, there was a falling out in the family and this poor little kid tried to get her aunt to come back into the family 18 months before she committed suicide. And the aunt just, it was a long conversation. The girl couldn't make it work. She was just a kid, a teenager. And then the aunt commits suicide in Los Angeles. She loved this woman. She would vacation with her in the summers. This woman was her everything. And then there was this big slip, split in the family. She doesn't even know what it's about. Nobody ever told her. So she wanted to meet with David Schwimmer and, and she did everything she could before she did that. She, she went to psychologists, she went into a situation where she went back in time and to ask her aunt why she did it. And the aunt said, there's absolutely no reason why I did it. 
she actually made the leap back in time to be with her in some netherworld where people wait for people to come and talk to them. And the aunt said, there's absolutely no, I keep, there is no reason why. And so she had to leap, be transported back into this world with no answer. So she's relying completely on David Schwimmer to tell her something about her aunt right before she died. So she's, she gets to a, he's doing a lecture. She gets to talk to him afterwards and she says, hi, do you remember my, my aunt? She worked on your show. He goes, oh yeah. And he had, he had, she had thought in her dreams. She didn't even want to meet him, meet him because she thought he would say, of course I remember Gail. She was great. We all loved her. Guess what he said when he met her? Of course we remember Gail. We all loved her. She was great. And that was the end of that. So what this woman had to do was just put it on the back burner. Just let it go. No answers. She goes back in time. Her aunt can't tell her anything. David Schwimmer can't tell her anything. So what she just decided to do after 20 years of wondering what happened, she just dropped it. And she said, now it's time for me to find out who I am. I can't believe it. I can't believe she went back in time. She saw her aunt there and her aunt said, there's no reason why I did it. I just think her aunt could have given her a little something. So that was a sad story. Okay, now, Joan Didion, who was amazing, you know, she was everything to us during the time. Her husband, Griffin Dunn, they wrote screenplays together. He, they did witness. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, I looked up to this couple because they had everything together. Her husband died just tragically, quickly, and she wrote the book, um, The Year of Magical Thinking. It's, it's a wonderful book. And anyway, all of her letters and everything have gone to the New York Public Library. They bought it. And you can read about who she was when she was a kid, letters she wrote to her mom when she was in school. And so I think I'm going to do a whole podcast on it, on that because I'm just fascinated by it. So that's one. Now this one, the obituaries. Rabbi Harold S. Kushner. He died at 88. Okay, and he was in hospice care. Okay, so he wrote the book. Well, first book he wrote was When All You've Ever Wanted Isn't Enough. Okay, then. That's how he was feeling then. Then, and I don't know why he was upset. He doesn't know why I was upset because the next thing that happened was after, okay, so he has this little girl and baby girl. The next day he finds out that his three-year-old son has this hideous disease where he ages so quickly, just like in Benjamin Button. But it really happened to this kid. It's called progeria. And your body ages rapidly. It's so sad. When his son Aaron was 10, he was in his 60s physi physiologically. He weighed only 25 pounds and was as tall as a three-year-old. And in 1977, two days before his 14th birthday, he died. That's when Rabbi Harold S. Kushner understood that all he ever had was enough in the first book. And he found out that he should have been happy and he had it all. So the kid, the little boy Aaron said, thought that he would be forgotten. And the father said, I promise I will write your story. So he goes, 
It was his very first inkling into real suffering. Oh my gosh, the deep end of the pool, as far as suffering goes. And he realized that the whole world needed this book because it went right to the New York Times bestseller list. And he, he tries to say in his theses that it becomes much easier to take God seriously as the source of moral values if we don't hold him responsible for all the unfair things that happen in this world. Okay, but how am I going to do that? So then he goes, I don't know why one person gets sick and another does not, but I can only assume that some natural laws which we don't understand are at work. I cannot believe that God sends illness, I'm thinking of my son, to a specific person for a specific reason. I'm going to cry. I don't believe in a God who has a weekly quota of malignant tumors to distribute and consults his computer to find out who deserves one more or whose family could handle it the best. So he says, what did I do to deserve this with my son? And he said, there is nothing. You just have to believe in what you can believe in and you just have to be as strong as you can be. So that's why he wrote the book. I never knew it. I almost made fun of the book. I wasn't, I wasn't fair to it. So then, you know, I've got a great big respect for that guy now. And uh, I don't know why bad things happen to good people, but I wanted to write the book. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's the one that really confounds me. Why do bad people get all the money and all the happiness and all the vacations and all the girls and all the yachts and all the fun? And they're bad. I don't get it. So I wanted to write the book. How would you cope with when when bad, when good things happen to bad people? But I never got to it. I don't know anybody. So that's the other thing. It's very hard to get anything done when you're unknown. But here's a good one. Okay, so there's this fighter pilot who's nearly 100 years old. And he started having nightmares in his late 90s. He would wake up feeling helpless like he was falling out of the sky and he'd be afraid. So what happened was his daughters, he's got really good daughters, Emily and Abby, and they didn't know what to think. And finally, they, they realized this might have something to do with the war because he was a fighter pilot. So there was a time when they went to go visit the grandmother's house and she proudly pulled out four slender boxes. They were filled with medals and bright ribbons. She wanted us to take them home. But the father said, I got those in the war and I don't want them. So this is amazing because these are great daughters. Emily and Abby remembered that when they heard about their father having these bad dreams. They found the boxes. They were in the back of a closet when they cleaned out their father's house. He had just moved at 99 to a care facility and his apartment was still being emptied. That's how long this guy held on with his own, you know, grit. And his nightmare started when he went to this retire retirement place. So they went and found the boxes and they brought them to him. And in a letter to his mother, he was at school and Pearl Harbor happened. And he jumped on the first bus, went to New York, and he enlisted. And he was dispatched to flight school in Miami, probably because he was smart. He had never even been on an airplane. But he emerged in 1944 as a fighter pilot and was sent to the Italian front to fight the Nazis. He was in a B-47 Thunderbolt and 
He was the lone guy on it with an eight-ton weapon. He never got good at marching or saluting, he said, but they made me a pretty good pilot. So his bombs destroyed axle railroad cars, large gasoline trucks. He would go out three times a week. He stalled enemy, enemy trains all over Italy where the guys, he said the guys were getting hammered. I, for, I forced them to let me up in the sky at least three times a week. But what happened was at the end of this, towards the end of the war, all the guys were getting worried about their survival. They had never thought about it. All they were thinking about was the guys on the ground. So then he gets in this, it gets, gets very tense. And they're, they're, this is where the war is happening right now. And so there's a German shell that burst right outside his cockpit. Fragments sliced into the plane, tearing his uniform. He was bleeding from the neck. He circled around for another attack before guiding his heavily damaged aircraft back to the base. That's one Purple Heart. Okay, he made them let him go back up in the air. So this time, German troops were coming on both sides of the river and beating our guys up on the ground. So what he did was, he had a first pass, there were plenty of tracers coming at us, and I got hit from underneath. It felt like somebody had paddled my rear end. He asked another pilot to fly around the plane to eyeball the damage. The pilot said, you know, I see some smoke. So then he kept going because there was no way to parachute out. So he circles around again and he tells his officer, I'm going back. And his officer says, don't be a jerk, John, come home. He said, I can't, I gotta do it. So he circled back and he did another mission. He landed more bombs on the ground with the plane that was on fire. He said, I'm having too much fun to go home. That was what he got famous for saying. He began to think that old Joe was right. The officer, when he saw that the planes consumed most of the chute, plus the seatbelt pan, the seat of his pants were on fire, and it was starting on his seatbelt, which burned like the wick of a cheap firecracker. He couldn't eject. Once again, his parachute was broken because these guys went up in the air too much. Nothing was right about this plane. His only op option was to push back to Pisa, Pisa, so he did. And they got on, on the ground and extinguished the flames. A doctor pulled some steel splinters out of him and treated him with burn ointment. And he asked for replacement trousers and they did not come. He was denied new pants. That is so funny. They were so broke at the time. This war was exhausting. He got two purple hearts in eight days. All his daughters knew when they were kids, the grandmother did say that he got shot in the rear end and they thought it was funny and that's all they knew about him in the war until these boxes came out with all of this information. Afterwards, he was lost and he got a little apartment in New York with, with some of the money that he was given and he started drinking and he was painting and he would go to this bar that all the guys went to and he would just sit there and nobody would, it was called the Remo Cafe, and it was on McDougal Street. Everybody went, all the soldiers, and they didn't talk. They would just look at each other and drink. Eventually, he discovered his instinct for business. Somebody talked to him at the bar, gave him a job, right? I mean, that's what people do. That's, that's the best part of this story. Someone gave him a job. He needed a job right away. He met a young social worker, and he married her. 
and they had those two girls and he stayed busy. So for 70 years, he buried that entire story. His daughter set him up with a counselor and the counselor and he would talk on Zoom calls. And the daughters just realized that there was so much more hours and hours would go by. And he would pour his heart out to the counselor. And then the girls would come and he'd tell them every aspect of the story. What he had for lunch, what the guy's names were. He remembered everything. And so there was no place to talk about it when he was young and no way to express himself. He could not find the words. And he regretted that with his mother. But there was no way to bring it up. So for many years he just tucked it away. And now he had this reason to pull it out. It was tormenting him. So this is the funny part. He recalls flying over the untouchable city of Venice. German shoulder, soldiers had occupied Venice and were enjoying the sunshine, all the food, all the girls, all the goodies. Venice was a safe haven and this angered him more than anything in the war. So his wife Alice wanted to go see Venice. He said no. He finally turned around and he said, okay, I'll go. She loved it, he hated it. But the thing that happened was, the bravado he had once shown in his writing, too much fun to go home, long ago had fled away from him. But when he saw the medals, it all came back. And he found the need to look at them and to tell the story. And when he did, all the nightmares went away. That happened with Kit's father. We took him to the Nemes Museum, which is in New, um, wait a minute, Fredericks Fredericksburg. And he saw bivouacs and all kinds of things. And he started talking about the war. And he asked me if it was all right. I guess back in the 50s, it wasn't always all right to do. But we were fascinated. And I tried to get the Nemitz hat was taking verbal accounts of people's history, tape recording it. And he was going to do that with me when he came back to the Nemitz Museum on the next trip. But there was no next trip. So his story got lost. And his story was, one interesting aspect of it, was he was at this bar and he was going to go, you know, over to Asia where 80% of the guys were dying. He's sitting at this bar talking to this guy and the guy says, how about I save your life? He was a big shot in the desert where they were um, doing all of the, the routes that the jets would take in much smaller, you know, like a mile would be an inch or whatever. And they trained these guys what to do when they got there and how to do it with all the math and everything because Francis was an engineer. So one day, and they have no idea why, because no one told them anything, they all woke up early and they saluted a plane and it was the Enola Gay. When he told me that, I almost fell down. He said, you could just feel it. And I think of all the guys, peripheral guys in those big stories and what they, what they had to endure, what they had to keep inside. I was, I marveled at the whole story. So I've got one that is a great one to end on because this is, the ha this is my happiness story and I'm gonna save it. Okay, a long-suffering town in Wales finally gets its Hollywood ending. Okay, this little town in Wales, they would drink and they would always say, Heriath, which means nostalgia for longing of a better time. This town is a working class town in Northern Wales. 
and they have a, they had a terrible soccer team that they were very very proud of. Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney bought the soccer league for two and a half million dollars. They built it up. The, oh, the, and he wrote. There's a song that the people in the town sing, and it's a tribute to Rob McElhenney. That's how you pronounce his name. And the song is about you know, don't say Mick, don't ever say Mick, say Mac. Don't ever say Henny, say Henny. And anyway, it's a cute song. Ryan Reynolds sings it. The whole town fell in love with these people. But the coolest thing is, they invested in the team. They invested in the um, stadium. The whole town got behind it. This was the story they were all looking for. Everyone supports them. Everyone loves them. Ryan Reynolds bought a home in the town. He loves these people, loves this town. And all the people will lift a glass and they say that these two boys brought a bit of sparkle to the town and they did. So the thing is, <laughs> they also made the team start winning. So this soccer team went up, you know, like there's, um, you know, in baseball, there's, there are levels of play. And, you know, there's the minor leagues and the major leagues. This team, went from the minor leagues to the major leagues right as because this all happened because Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney got married and I mean not got married um, built up this town with the soccer team he so that guy Rob he's on the show Always Sunny in Philadelphia Kate Olsen is also on that show and she was in that wonderful movie called Champions with the Down Syndrome kids who became champions. These are really, really nice people. The Turf Hotel and this bar in town, they run out of they run out of drinks every single night. They can't keep up with all these people coming into town. They finally realize that when someone wants to rest, go to the restroom, they're not tired. That's the toilet. They've, they've, they're learning how to speak to people with American accents, which they think is a foreign language. So this culture is straight out of a sitcom. So they've kind of made a little documentary out of it. I think it should be even more than that. The town's museum is in the process of building a soccer section to cater to the growing public interest in the team. And all the team members who'd been on the teams for, from years gone by are backing this 100%. They're not jealous. There's no jealousy in this town. Everybody is just so happy because this is how it used to be. In their paper, everything was grim. The town was grim. Now they've got color in the town. People have money for flowers. The paper used to have headlines like, End of the Road. It'd be a one headline documentary on the closing of the town brewery. Then there'd be another one, I'll shut this club down. These were, the, these were their headlines in the paper before these two kids came to town. It was always dark. It was never sunny in Wex Wexham. And now it's like Philadelphia, which is never sunny. That's a joke. But here, it's never sunny, but they are always, always happy. So this is what happened. There are people who want to get married on the stadium floor. There are people that want to have their babies there. This has brought this town so much happiness. People who were in lifelong depressions are coming out of their depression. And Ryan Reynolds and Rob Mack 
El Heni are the two most popular people in the town. And their wives, everyone loves their wives because they're great wives. Blake Lively is a great person. Caitlin Olson is a great person. They're making friends with everybody. Their kids are making friends with everybody. They didn't just buy the team. They bought the town and they bought into the town and they stay there and they have a great time. And the team's just getting better and better and it's getting more and more, more and more activity. The FX documentary, I've got to watch it. Turf Hotel, going nuts. Oh my God, it used to be a fighting town. People just ended up fighting all the time because that's all they had to do. And they had a boxing club to help dis disadvantaged, disadvantaged teenagers. But now there's a lot of advantage. There's a lot of jobs. So they're not fighting as much. I mean, they didn't, they didn't even call the cops. They just taught people how to fight. There was no, we're not going to fight in, in Wexham. There was just, you're going to fight in Wexham, know how to fight. Now they are all working. It's just like that is the greatest story. I'm gonna have to be. A, I'm gonna have to be a huge fan. The whole town's been revived. They can't find. You know, in articles they always try to balance it out to try to find somebody who's upset. They can't find anybody. You don't. You don't even need to try. That's what they say. There's nothing but upside to this, and the boys are loved. So, Ryan Reynolds is quite the character. He's a force of good. This is not the first thing he's done. But this might be the best, I mean, just to bring back a, a coal mining town. <laughs> so what happened was, yeah, so they're they're moving up the soccer pyramid, pyramid after a 15-year absence. So it's, it's a joy. And the town people look great. Everything looks great about it. And I just think I want to go. People are going to Wrexham now just to be part of it just to see the people, just to feel the excitement, because it's a, it's a renaissance. So that was my favorite story. Long-suffering town in Wales finally gets its Hollywood ending. And what a Hollywood ending. All the kids are happy now. They're wearing brighter colors. They've got a future. They're not ever gonna be off the map again. That's what they say. It's bright. It's always sunny in Wexham. So. That made me happy, and that's what I've got this week. And try to stay sane. The story made me very happy today. I will be back. Thanks.